The passage on which the teaching is based this morning comes from Matthew chapter 12. I invite you to turn with me to that section. If you have a pew Bible, you can look at page, I think it's 816. You can look this up. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is a man than sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. So I want to establish from the outset that I did very poorly in high school chemistry. Not here to blame anybody but myself for that fact, but it always makes me a little insecure when I try to use chemistry-related illustrations from the pulpit. But Despite my performance in high school, I vividly remember in my mind holding on to something that was known as a reagent. A reagent is something, usually a compound or substance, that is used in chemistry experience to trigger a chemical reaction. Turns out we've been using reagents for quite a while now. For those of you who I'm sure have taken an in-home COVID test, you've used a reagent. Test starts with a chemical sample and then the reagent is added to the mixture and you wait for the reaction. Well, depending on how the sample reacts depends on if you have COVID or something else. Uh, Pregnancy tests, blood glucose tests, all these use reagents like these. Well, this had me thinking because in the section that we've entered here in Matthew 11 through 13, we could easily describe that section as reactions to Jesus. In other words, these chapters catalog for us the way in which people received Jesus' ministry. And how they received it said everything about what was inside their hearts. So, think of Jesus as the reagent, human hearts as the sample. What kind of reactions was Jesus getting? Well, I think we can name three. The first group are those who initially bought in. They immediately bought in. They believed him. They followed him. The second group are those who are a little bit unsure. They, they kept their distance, but they followed enough to see where the story of this whole young Jewish upstart was really going. And then finally, there was a group that just outright rejected him. Everything Jesus was about. This was a group that was known as the Pharisees. Now look, we've got a lot of familiarity with that word in our day, but Pharisee where it's almost a synonym for uh, legalism. But this is the first time that Matthew's really started mentioning them. And so I think it deserves a little bit of backstory to understand why they received Jesus the way in which they did. And stated simply, the Pharisees were a reaction against an encroaching, I guess, secularism that was brought on by the occupying force of the Roman Empire. 
Uh, This actually shouldn't surprise any of us, even though it oftentimes does, that one of the complicated things about dealing with humans is that you cannot have an action without often a counter-reaction. I mean, think about it. You you cannot live in a totalitarian dream uh, for too long before eventually oppressed people are going to rise up and burn the whole thing down. Or on the opposite side, you can tout your freedom from convention till you're blue in the face, but eventually someone's going to come along and uh, say that the lack of rules and organization is going to launch a movement to sort of force feed their point of view down your throats. Go home this afternoon and think about the last 10 years of national life in America and tell me that I'm wrong. So the Pharisees represent what I would say a conservative resurgence in Palestine. They are tired of Israeli cultural drift and the diluting of national identity that Jewish people were supposed to have, yes, by divine right, which explains why they're super interested in this miracle-working, you know, rabbi wonder from Nazareth. Is he going to be a guy who plays ball? Uh, Is he going to come on board with our plan to recover Israel's glory? Well, what they don't expect is for Jesus to be a spiritual reagent, (laughs) He shows up to test them, it turns out. And as he ministers, he comes into conflict with these people's, really their most treasured piece of cultural identity practice. And that is the meticulous keeping of the Sabbath. And once Jesus and the Pharisees clash over this issue, there's an inevitable showdown that's coming between them. Jesus is the reagent here who, who delivers three checks on the Pharisees that I think will also open up some insights into our own hearts this morning. Three checks. He's going to check your facts. He's going to invite you to check your heart and then finally to check your motivation. Let's jump in that first one, to check your facts. It's not hard to follow the logic here from our, from our passage. If you look at the verse that's proceeding in chapter 12, you'll see that Jesus has just said his very famous line, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Find Jesus, and you'll find rest is his promise. So to illustrate, Matthew tells this story about a confrontation Jesus had with these religious elite. Apparently his disciples were walking through, picking up the soft grains at the top of this field wheat, which of course is no problem there. The problem was, is they were doing it on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And of course, this was a massive no-no for these people. You know, it, it almost is like the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, is just vague enough to invite these generations of Sabbath observers to attach, I mean, literally a mind-bending number of rules to this command. Uh, This example right here is pretty illustrative. Yes, you can't pick the grain off the head of wheat because that would be work, right? Uh, Commentator Kent Hughes has a great outline of just the absurdity of what these laws, which became known as the, uh, the Mishnah to the Orthodox, had morphed into. They included things that you probably would expect, like plowing and hunting and butchering, but also things that you wouldn't, like untying a knot, That's a a violation. Sewing more than one stitch or writing more than one letter, strictly forbidden. And and of course, they could border in the ridiculous as well. Apparently, if a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could remove to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If they were alive, then you could rescue it. But if they're dead, you had to leave their corpses there until sunset. And and to make the whole thing even uh, more amazing and, and vivid, 
Lots of these Pharisees advocated the death penalty for those who violated the commandment. So yeah, <laughs> these convictions, as we might say, were tightly held. So Jesus is, is experiencing his official confrontation with these people. And he begins to respond to them. But you'll see that his, his response is very clever. Because he begins each of his saying, sayings by saying, Haven't you read... Now, that's an amazing thing to ask a Pharisee, an expert in the law. Jesus is just sharpening his knife here. It would be a little bit like going up to Brian Sorgenfrey and saying, have you heard what Lane Kiffin said after the game last night? Of course he has. Any Ole Miss fan knows exactly what that is. To ask a Pharisee whether you've read this in the law, it shows that Jesus is up for a fight. And so the next, Jesus references this story from the Old Testament about King David. Go home and read it. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men are hungry on a Saturday, no less. And so they enter the Old Testament worship tent, what was known as the tabernacle. Well, there on the inside of that room were the fresh loaves of bread that were forever resting inside the tent that we know as the table of showbread. Well, they eat it. Now look, now this is a violation for sure because that bread was intended to be for no one other than the priests. David had violated the Old Testament law. Ah, but here's what's weird, Jesus says. That passage contains no sense that King David was condemned for doing so. So do you see Jesus' point? He's like, look, King David did something far worse than what my disciples did, and he wasn't condemned for it. I mean, what's the deal? Are all of you suddenly more holy than David or maybe in the Old Testament priests? But of course, the priests, they don't cry uncle at that at all. Why? Well, because even if they conceded Jesus' point, they probably in the back of their mind were still thinking, well, you know, David's men were starving. You get, your guys weren't. Plus, you know what? That was King David himself. I mean, who are you? So Jesus follows up with another point about Old Testament priests. Priests, it turns out, have all kinds of work to do on the Sabbath day just so they can keep the temple going. But they're not condemned for that. Why? Well, because temple work trumps Sabbath rest for priests. But then Jesus drops the hammer there in verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now he's answered their question. Like, oh yeah, something much greater than David is actually here. Now look, before we move on to the next point, I want to pause for a moment to take note of how it is that Jesus confronts. Because most often he begins his confrontation by establishing the authority that he has to make the, make the claims that he is. Now, of course, this is actually the first shock to the system that the reagent will oftentimes cause for people. Let's imagine for a moment that you get a knock on your door tomorrow morning and you're sitting in your office and someone barges in and says, hey, look, you're doing this all wrong. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm here to show you how it's done. So, so step aside. I can almost have a 100% guarantee of what you would say next. You would say, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, tell me who you are again. Why are you here? In other words, you want to know by what authority that person is making the claims over you. Well, for some weird reason, we are living in a cultural moment now where we just, we seem to have stopped asking that question. By whose authority? You see, when anybody makes any claim about what they consider to be truth, even if they're saying it's just my truth about their rules, about their way of living, about their identity. It is an entirely Christian thing to ask, well, what, by what authority do you make that claim? 
Whose shoulders do you stand upon? Now, I think I can speculate that one of the reasons why we're not asking this question in our generation is because we've all very imperceptibly decided that there is no authority beyond just my own feelings. My feelings dictate what is authoritative. Now, we simply have not yet entertained the results of that question. What does that leave us with when everyone is acting as if their own truth is in their own eyes? No wonder we're splintering as a culture. But to ask, by what authority is Jesus' way? It's a way of him checking your facts. Which brings us to the second point, is to check your heart. The Pharisees, of course, you know, are, are, are wrestling with Jesus. But notice, Jesus is not in some kind of chest-bumping moment with the Pharisees. That's not what this is about. I think Jesus is after their hearts, just like he's after your heart this morning. And the way in which he argues, I think, is genius. Because he starts out by arguing unequivocally, in verse 8, that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he makes a beeline for the synagogue. Because he knows that there is there a man who has a withered hand. It's all we're told about it. Now look, the Pharisees know for a fact that Jesus is a healer. They get it. But they also know that it's just as unlawful for someone to heal on the Sabbath as it is to pick the heads of grain out, right? So they got it, right? Verse 10, they look at it like, so uh, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath there, smart guy? Really, think about that question for just a second. This is a man who's suffering. Jesus has the power to heal him. So you're suggesting that maybe I shouldn't heal him because that's a violation of your silly rules? I, I use this illustration very carefully because it's something that touched my wife and me very personally. But I'm assuming for many of you, um, you've watched some of the police tactical video that came out of the uh, uh, shooter as they stormed Covenant Presbyterian Church back in March up in Nashville. Those men who did that were widely praised for their actions, right? How quickly they moved. But, I can, but imagine if those videos instead contained these long, sort of drawn-out speculation by these uh, officers, you know, asking things like this, I, I don't know, do we have authorization for this? Or um, does anybody have like a map of the interior of the church handy? Um, I mean, do we even have any jurisdiction here? If you would have been standing alongside that, you would have been fully within your rights to say, Someone is shooting people in there. Forget your rules. Go do something. Which I think is exactly what Jesus is trying to expose. Jesus is trying to get them to say, look, if my meticulous religious practice is constructed in such a way that makes me miss the opportunity to show mercy, then something is wrong with your use of the rules. Hey, by the way, I'm using my words very carefully here. It's the use of the rules Jesus is objecting to, not the rule itself necessarily. Well, it led guys like R.C. Sproul to put it this way. He said, Jesus was assigning a hierarchy of values. He was saying, yes, I want sacrifices. Yes, it's important to offer the sacrifices as part of your religious obligations, but mercy is much more important than ritual. And when there's a conflict between ritual and mercy, always default to mercy. Hmm. Look, my point this morning is simply to show you that Jesus is giving us a massive heart check when it comes to the way we approach his rules. And the fact that he uses a rule that was established to root rest in two human hearts, I think makes it all the much more profound. Think about it for a moment. 
The rules can only really accomplish one of two things in your heart, if you really take them seriously. On the one hand, they can make you proud and condescending because, hey, let's face it, you're the one who's doing your life right. <laughs> you figured it out. You got your life together, and there's nobody that can tell you otherwise. Or there's option two, where those rules can crush you crush you under the realization that you're not doing your life right and any hope that you might have is lost on your inability to do so. But what Jesus is saying is that regardless of the effect of the law on your heart, I am here to make you understand that neither of those two individuals, whether you embrace the law as a Pharisee or whether you reject the law as, as a lawbreaker, neither of you know how to rest. Neither of you can figure out what it means to rest. There is nothing quite like, I would argue, the question of rest to really uncover the condition of your heart. It's worth spending some time, as we shall do now, <laughs> in the last point, which is to check your motivation. Look, because the Pharisees, by turning the Sabbath into this badge of honor, this cultural distinctive, they were tipping their hand, weren't they, about just how insecure they were about their identity. I mean, here's Jesus casting a vision for the Sabbath keeping in, a, in such a way where a believer is supposed to observe it as an anticipation who is looking forward to a day. He wants his people to enjoy this, this time away so that they're looking forward to a time when he would re-complete us in all eternity. So therefore, they kept the Sabbath, Jesus was saying, as a way to suggest satisfaction to be satisfied, to, 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 to sit in just a little bit of calm, uh, to, to enjoy a moment where you reflect on your security, how safe you are, to experience joy. Ah, but that's the problem, right? Because religious people never get to rest. Why? Well, because they're too insecure to. Uh, John Newton, the one who, um, the Puritan, former slave trader, Wrote, uh, wrote Amazing Grace, uh, has a great point in one of his little books on his letters, where he's talking about what happens oftentimes with a new religious Christian convert. He says, look, at the very beginning of their Christian journey, people are excited, they've got energy, they want to they do the right things, they go to Bible studies. But somewhere along the way, things change just a little bit. Something almost imperceptible changes. And instead of simply being thankful for what God is obviously giving to them in this enlarged heart for Christian service, they very slowly start to take credit for it. They take credit for how faithful they're being. And then somewhere in there, they begin to assume that God loves them because they're keeping the rules. You know, they used to be helpless sinners depending on God's grace for everything. But eventually, they kind of turn into uh, somewhat well-put-together Christians, right, who, who just don't do those kinds of things. What happened? Well, Newton says that what happened is you started resting in the performance of those things instead of in Jesus. And suddenly those things actually then begin to curse you. Your life as a Christian isn't restful at all because you're always conflicted. You're constantly failing. You're painfully aware of yourself. Why? Because somewhere along the path, you started inferring God's love from what you were doing rather than simply drawing off God's love because of his grace. But the net effect is there's no rest. You're not resting. Uh, it was about 20 years ago, I looked this up. Uh, Tim Keller quoted in one of his sermons 
a wonderful article in the New York Times by a Jewish lady named Judith Shulevitz uh, called Let's Bring Back the Sabbath. And, and I kept it in my illustration file because there were two places in that article that really struck me as profound. Uh, the first one is at the beginning of the article where she says this. She goes, look, back when Sunday was still sacred, not only did drudgery give away to festivity, family gatherings, and occasionally worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down too, stilling the eternal mur inner murmur of self-reproach. Wow, what a quote. What exactly is the, the machinery of self-censorship? What, what is the eternal murmur of self-reproach? She's talking about that part of us that is constantly working to, let, to, to make sure that we know just how far We've fallen short of what we're supposed to be doing. There's a voice in every single person that's telling you what you're supposed to be and that you are not that. But she said, when we learn to rest on the Sabbath, we put those voices away. We silence them for a moment. Look, you got to see this. Work, I think, is as wearisome as it is to us. Not so much because of the hours, which, you know, is bad enough as it is. But because in it, we're trying to prove ourselves, We're trying to convince ourselves and the world around us that we've justified our existence, that I've made it. I'm finally a, a somebody. That's why our work tyrannizes us. And Jesus' point is to say that inside of you, at the level of your motivations, there is a restlessness that will only be cured when you silence that voice. So how does that happen? Okay, back to Shulvitz's article here. In the last paragraph, she says this. She goes, think about creation's climactic culmination. It's the act of stopping. Why should God have considered it so important to stop? Well, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna, whoever that is, put it this way. God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only once we stop creating it and start to think about why we did so. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a Jewish rabbi, which means he's so close. Because he's referring to God's rest on the seventh day of creation. Now, look, mind you, God does not have a body. Okay, He doesn't need a nap. What it means on the seventh day that he rested means that he looked back and he was satisfied. He took joy in what he had done. It was complete. It wasn't missing. His works were a blessing to him. That's why I took joy in it. Because that's what God intended Adam and Eve to know. Look, look, it really is a mistake to think that somehow in this story in Matthew, Jesus is like deleting the fourth commandment from the list of the other ten. It does mean, though, that observing Sunday as a holy day, remember, set apart, unique, is an act of stopping. And therefore, it's an act of faith. It is your way of saying, the world is not so dependent on me that I can't take one day off and make that day special. And this is why for generations of Christians, they've always said, look, whatever I do on the other six days of the week, I'm going to refrain from it on Sunday. Why? Because that's not what defines me anymore. Look, and this is the reason why the rabbi's quote really moves me, because Jesus is implying that he's coming to do something it's going to fill up that hole of self-censorship inside of you. Jesus is saying, I am going to do something that is going to hush the restless murmur that constantly condemns you. 
The point being, only Jesus can create real rest. How? Well, look at verse 14. (laughs) This is a twist. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Hey, what's your definition of irony, right? The Pharisees want to kill Jesus because he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And eventually they succeed in killing him, which makes him Lord of the Sabbath. How? Well, don't you see that when Jesus was on the cross, he was up there writhing. He was up there crying. He's calling out. In other words, Jesus on the cross was profoundly restless. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries. But do you remember what he said at the end of suffering the ultimate restlessness? Right before he dies, remember Jesus' last words? It is finished. What's he saying? He says, it's complete. I finished it. I'm satisfied. My father is satisfied. And so what Jesus' intention is, is to so fill up his followers' imagination with that sacrifice on our behalf that gives us the ability to look at our work and say, you don't define me. Which means maybe for once in our lives, we can actually enjoy it for the first time. Hey, look, Jesus, the reagent, is still moving by his spirit. I wonder what is going to be your reaction to his claims this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that our reaction would be those of your faithful followers, that we would look at our, that we would look at our exhaustion. And it's more than just our physical exhaustion. There's something inside that can't even look back at our recent histories and say that we've been satisfied with everything because our failures are dotted all around us. Would you have us to look at the cross, though, this morning and for you to be hanging up there as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the one who rescued your people, as the one who comes alongside your people and loves us and cares about us and rescued us by your grace so that as we sing about your grace, we might be free, free indeed in a way in which we weren't before we came this morning. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.